3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Today is Tuesday the 30th of January and it is 7am. My name is Carnegie and I'm in the studio today with Fung and Francis. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are we today? Yeah, feeling, yeah, good. <laughs> slow. I'm feeling slow. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it is, a bit, it is a bit like that. Did anyone <laughs> do anything relatively exciting over the weekend? Or? Um, not really, but I'm just still um, thinking about how many people were at the Invasion Day rally yeah. on Friday. Felt it was massive. Yeah. It was really heartening. Um, I think this is the most diverse crowd I've seen as well. I think people from all walks of life were there um, because of the solidarity with Palestine as well, which was so great to see. Speeches were great. We'll be listening to some of those in the show later today. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, one of the best ones I've been to, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I was with 3CR as part of the out- outdoor broadcast team and we were standing sort of to the side of the speakers and you could look out to the crowd and you just couldn't see where it ended because there were just so many people and um yes continuing from what you were saying Carnegie I felt like um well Marisol and I we recorded some Vox Pops which we'll hear today but we spoke to a few Indigenous people not necessarily just to so-called Australia but from other places around the world and yeah not only diverse but a lot of Indigenous people from around the world um, standing in solidarity with First Nations people here which was um, yeah really heartening and also super important. Yeah I think we touched on this uh, last week um, but it's the the solidarity that we're seeing across the globe with not just First Nations people but so many colonised people through everything that's happening has has been a you know one heartening thing in all of this Mm, yeah I agree I felt like the yeah it was it was the speeches were amazing and I think um there was quite a lot of use of like language as well like indigenous languages and it felt just so sort of powerful all the stories about um how Indigenous people use the land differently and how they would use Australia differently and how Australia would be different if we had, um, you know, a bigger First Nations population and leadership. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was heartening as well as just being a really um, good reminder of how far we have to go. Definitely. All right, let's talk about what's coming up on the show today. We're going to start off listening to uh, a little bit of my 
Women on the Line episode that aired yesterday morning. Um, for this week's episode, I spoke with Dr. Jayakini, who is the author of the book Making Gabies. We've spoken to Jaya on the show before, uh, but for my Women on the Line, we kind of delved further into her book and what it's like for queer people to make families, especially the intersections of race and queerness in that um, process. Following on from that, we'll be revisiting a conversation that Ivka had with Jill Gallagher, um, proud Gundijamara woman and CEO of VATRO, which is the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. And they spoke on Tuesday breakfast a couple of weeks ago to talk about the latest budget submission to the Victorian government and the focus on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. Following on from that, we'll be listening to um, Vox Pops from Invasion Day this year. So Marisol from Mujeres Latino Americanas and I, um, we marched alongside people and and spoke to both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people at the rally, um, asking them why it was so important for people to show up in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities on um, the 26th of January. Uh, at eight o'clock, we'll be listening to a conversation I had yesterday with uh, Mackenzie Wakefield. Uh, Mackenzie is a lawyer f- working for um, Morris Blackman, and she's acting for the NTU uh, in a federal court application against uh, Queensland University of Technology. And finally, to finish off the show this morning, we'll be speaking with Jamie from Pride in Protest, who will be speaking to us about a statement they recently issued combating Zionism and um, allegations of Mardi Gras not being safe for the Jewish community. So we've got a big show coming up. We will be right back with the news headlines after this message. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, 30th of January, 2024. So one of the leading stories at the moment is that um, Australia is one of at least nine countries that have announced a suspension or review of donations to UNRWA, the UN's agency for Palestinian refugees, following Israeli allegations that some staff from UNRWA participated in the October 7 attacks. On the 27th of January, Senator Penny Wong released a statement saying that Australia would be temporarily pausing disbursement of recently announced funding. This statement came a day after the International Court of Justice ordered for Israel to act immediately to prevent genocide in Gaza and to ensure the provision of urgent services and humanitarian aid to the area. The UNRWA offers humanitarian aid, education, health and social services to around 5.9 million eligible Palestinian refugees living in Gaza, the occupied West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon and Syria. 
APAN has created a resource for people to take action to demand the Australian government reverse um, its decision to pause funding to the UNRWA and instead support a ceasefire uh, to facilitate access to unfettered humanitarian aid for Gaza and cut its military exports and cooperation with Israel. Um, if you'd like to participate, you can go to apan.org.au forward slash action dash reinstate dash UNRWA dash funding for more information. In other news, transnational geotechnical company CGG has lodged plans to conduct seismic blasting in the Otway Basin, just kilometres off the coast of the Great Ocean Road and in the carving grounds of the endangered southern right whale. Companies use seismic blasting to search for fossil fuel deposits, but it also deafens whales and hurts other marine life. So what happens is survey ships tow an array of air guns and receivers, and these air guns emit blasts that send a deafening sound wave up to 15 kilometres deep into the ocean floor. And these blasts are up to 250 decibels, which is louder than the Hiroshima bomb, and go off every 10 seconds, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, etc. Uh, seismic blasting is known to maim and kill marine animals and displace fisheries. Um, and the public actually has until February 26 to comment on CGG's proposal um, with the offshore oil and gas regulator, um, NOPSEMA, which is National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority. You can read about this um, in more detail by going to uh, marineconservation.org.au and clicking on News and Media. You can also learn more about the deadly impacts of seismic blasting by visiting ocean.org.au and make sure you follow SOPEC, which is the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective, on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, it's a Gunditjmara-led group fighting to protect sacred sea country, and we'll be hearing more about this later in today's show. Um, stay tuned to 3CR as well um, as we continue to cover this really important topic. For some local news, uh, the owner of Robinson's Bookstores, Suzanne Horman, has made a public statement saying that Robinson's stores need to stock more white male representation in its books and that she will be advocating for this shift in focus for the books they stock in the coming year. She went on to say that the books that are missing from their bookshelves include ones with traditional nuclear white family stories, non-Indigenous Australian history, kids' picture books with just white kids on the cover, and books without anyone in a wheelchair, without rainbows and without any Indigenous art. The post received, understandably, a lot of backlash, and Robinson's has since issued a statement uh, which includes an apology, but it also says that they too have observed a lack of books where men and boys are no longer the heroes of the books and we're looking to stock more. There will be a public meeting tonight at the Resistance Centre on Swanson Street called Busting the Myth of Israeli Democracy. It will go from 6.30 to 8.30pm. Israel claims to be the only democracy in the Middle East, whereas the reality is quite different. Israel, Israeli democracy is based on Zionist indoctrination, racist citizenship laws, and a supremacist state in which Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens. 
So if you would like to join, you can join Green Left and Socialist Alliance for this discussion. Speakers include Palestinian activist Mai Saif, anti-Zionist Jewish activist Natson Amir, and Meredith Lawrence from the Socialist Alliance. If you come early by 6 p.m., you can also enjoy a hot vegan meal. Entry will be by donation and no one will be turned away. There will also be a teach-in at Victoria University uh, organized by the VUNTEU Palestine Action Group. This will be next Monday, the 5th of February at VU's Footscray Park campus. The event is open to the public and will begin at 5.30 p.m. Speakers include Noura Mansour and Dr. Jody Silverstein from APAN and Lara, uh, Lana Lamb, who we have spoken to from the Sit Intifada um, and heaps more. You can follow Lana's Instagram for updates and more information at lil underscore habiti. Uh, moving to Kenya, on Saturday 27th of January, thousands of people marched in towns and cities across the country protesting femicide in what is being described as the largest event against sexual and gender-based violence in the country. Uh, this comes in response to the murders of at least 14 women since the start of this year, according to Patricia Andego, a data journalist at media and research firm Odipodev. And as per Femicide Count Kenya, at least 150 femicides in 2023 and many more cases are likely to go unreported. The horrific and gruesome nature of recent murders, including a young woman uh, dismembered, have sparked outrage uh, on social media and on the streets and we're seeing calls for an end to gender-based violence. Our feminist groups are still wanting to see this public outrage turn into action and change. Uh, on the 18th of January, Femicide Count Kenya released a statement saying, the government cannot remain complicit. Kenya is party to international conventions against gender-based violence. The president himself has pledged to protect women's lives. These promises are hollow when femicide remains rampant. Enforcement and accountability are urgently needed. And uh, they go on to say that this is something that uh, is not being reported as much as it needs to be. It needs to be spoken out more so that um, the issue can be addressed. Um, protesters are also calling for femicide to be recognised as a crime separate from homicide. Uh, the circumstances are very specific, as is the multifaceted action at the level of government, law and society in terms of public attitudes and misogyny are needed to make change. Those are our news headlines for this morning, the 30th of January. We're going to play you a track now. Charlie is a proud Guringai woman whose music features live looping and original compositions inspired by Charlie's new braces and uh, are about her learning about her family's Aboriginal heritage. This song is called Daryung. <laughs>
That was Dare Young by Charlie Needs Braces. On this week's episode of Women on the Line, I spoke with Dr. Jayakini, author of Making Gabies, Queer Reproduction and Multiracial Feeling. Jaya is a lecturer in gender studies at the University of Melbourne, where she researches and teaches in the areas of feminist science studies, queer studies, and queer of colour theory. Jaya and I spoke about her experience as a queer biracial woman researching this book, the complexities and intersections of race and queerness when creating queer families, how queer couples have to make do when creating families, and the future of queer family making here in Silk Old Australia. Here is the start of that episode. Your book, Making Gabies, talks about what it's like to create a queer family in so-called Australia today. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about what you learned about the process of creating a queer family from your participants? Yeah, definitely. And thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really lovely to have the opportunity to speak about the book um, with you. Um, I learned a lot from my participants. I guess the broad kind of context of uh, queer family making um, was a central part of their narratives and how that's changed in the last decade to two decades. Um, so a really central focus of the book is this transformation in the last one to two decades of queer family making um, that began as a really kind of DIY um, practice and process because of the way that queer families um, and queer people having children were kind of rendered anathema to the dominant model of, of family making, of families that was heterosexual and nuclear. Um, and so queers, of course, found ways to have families outside of that model and outside of the IVF industry's support um, as they were often locked out of those industries. But in the last decade to two decades, there's been a real transformation. Um, and that is kind of has followed the course of me um, starting to identify as queer as well in my own life. So when I first came out, queer people were really not hailed as potential reproducers in the way they are today. And today I feel like um, queer people have become a really central uh, target market for the IVF industry. There's these forms of legal enablement, but also kind of social acceptance uh, in Australia for queer family making of certain kinds. Um, and a sort of biomedical support. Uh, so forms of more DIY family making that might have been central in the 1990s, 80s, um, early 2000s, uh, they've now kind of transformed into more formalised um, forms of creating families through the IVF industry and through technologies like donor conception and surrogacy. Um, and with that comes a whole form of, a whole range of tensions um, and I think tricky questions for us, as well as um, new beautiful ways of having families. Yeah, it's a it's a complex industry and uh, process, I think, for most people to navigate. In the book, you talk about settler colonial social norms and how they have historically defined family and motherhood. I found this really interesting. Could you talk about how this has impacted queer families today and what defines queer parenting now? Mm, sure. I mean, I think that when you're talking about reproduction, um, when you're talking about race, and especially when you're talking about those two things together, um, you have to centre settler coloniality as the context in which those things proceed um, in Australia and a range of other places today. Um, and I think part of the work of the book is to try to trace and unpack some of the ways that 
uh, settler colonial legacies operating even when they might not be really centrally visible. Um, I think reproduction is a central technology of colonisation, um, both the control of reproduction in general um, and also kind of contouring who has access to reproductive support, um, social support for their parenthood. Um, the ways that that manifests uh, in the book and in the experience of queer communities today, I think, is that uh, certain kinds of queer people are increasingly being um, hailed as intending parents or um, potential parents and their reproductive goals are supported. And in settler colonial contexts, that often comes at the expense of other groups um, whose motherhood or parenthood is not supported uh, in those ways. Um, so I think it's important to look at groups that are that don't have access to the fertility industry in the same way that queer people of certain kinds often do. Um, a central part of that is, of course, financial capital, um, but also racialized hierarchies of who's considered a good parent. Um, and in Australia, we have to think about Indigenous communities and how reproduction and reproductive control has been used centrally against those communities. Um, another way that those legacies show up for queer people when they enter um, the kind of complex choices that, that they have to make when having a child um, is that the kind of governance structures and a lot of the restrictions around IVF or reproductive tech access in Australia today um, uh, bear the traces of colonial histories and efforts to reckon with them. So um, there's a very strict altruistic industry in Australia, for example, so you can't access donor sperm or eggs or surrogates um, in exchange for a fee. Those things all have to be altruistic. Um, and that comes in part from efforts to reckon legislatively um, with the legacy of child removal uh, that still continues to this day. Um, so there's some of the ways it shows up. Another central way that we might get into a little bit more and when we talk about some of the participants' experiences is thinking about race in the frame of colorblindness. That's a kind of, I think, staple of multicultural settler colonialism because it allows whiteness to remain at the center. I mean, I think that's a great segue into that topic. Um, that's the part of your book I was most interested in because um, the book is personal for me. My partner and I recently had a baby through IVF and I'm Indian and she's white Australian. And, you know, we reckoned with a lot of these questions. It was difficult and it's it's always fraught, I think. Um, but we we did, you know, a lot of the internal questioning and we just wanted the best thing for us and for our babies. So it was really interesting to read what other queer couples uh, considered the best thing for them and their babies, because mm -hmm. the spectrum was huge. Um, so I'm interested to know, first of all, how you found the participants that you spoke with. Yeah. Um, I mean, I found the participants through a range of methods. Uh, I was supported by a lot of different um, queer community groups who kind of put out flyers for me and um, helped me to source people who might be interested uh, in speaking with me in that way. I also um, spoke with friends and friends of friends. Um, so as a queer person entering this research, I had a lot of friends who were starting to have children. Um, some of them spoke with me or referred me to other, other people. So that's kind of like a um, you know, through my social networks. Um, 
And I found that people were really eager to be interviewed. I was really kind of blown away uh, by the generosity of people sharing their stories. And I think this is partly because um, there's not much documentation of these experiences in Australia of queer family making today, and particularly the intersection with race. Um, I think a lot of people are really eager to talk about, you know, the vexed questions that you've just alluded to in your own experience. Um, so yeah, it was it was good to talk about. And I think, of course, um, being a queer and mixed race person myself uh, helped helped in the recruitment, right? Um, for people to feel like there was a solidarity between us. What are your thoughts as a queer and mixed race person on some of the reasons that you heard um, from different participants about what racial mix they would like their child to be? Mm. What are some of the anecdotes or stories that stand out to you and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the central thing, I suppose, that the book really explores and that I grapple with is um, that there seem to be in these experiences of Australian parents a collision or an intimacy between the queer and the multiracial um, for a range of reasons, including that Australia's IVF industry for a range of kind of, um, for a range of historical reasons is quite restrictive. And so there's quite a limited supply of donor sperm and donor eggs. And so that meant that a lot of people uh, entered the IBF industry or went online to look for donors through informal methods, expecting to have a real um, diverse set of offerings. Mm -hmm. And then were quite surprised that the offerings were limited. Um, some of the couples I interviewed, for example, lesbian couples who were looking for donor sperm, found they were only offered like eight donors. Um, and for many of them, none of those fit their desired um racial profile uh I was surprised by the fact that race and those kinds of racialized desires are so central in the IVF industry um I mean of course they are because the family is this the center of how we think about race we always kind of talk about race as something that comes from our parents um and we presume that that's a mother and a father so that's why the queer family is so interesting to me um but yeah, to your question of kind of some of the most memorable anecdotes, um, the most common kind of experience described in the international uh, literature on queer families is that people want a child that looks like them. And what that often means is um, a child that shares the same racial mix. Most frequently for me, um, that was white couples who wanted a white child who looked similar. And that's in order to kind of pass as or or look like a kind of traditional form of family. But that showed up also for a lot of the women of colour I interviewed um, for whom a kind of shared racial identity meant something slightly different, a shared racial identity between them and their child. It didn't mean uh, looking like a family to outside observers necessarily or not only. It was really wrapped up with a kind of uh, solidarity, a kind of anti-racist approach to um yeah kind of promoting and supporting identities um of color so kid having children of color as a kind of way to create an affinity in the family but also push against some of the racist assumptions that whiteness would afford more more socially but the other kind of set of really memorable anecdotes or experience 
experiences in the book is queer parents that um, consciously conceived children who were of a different um, racial makeup to either them or their partner. And I really wasn't expecting that when I went into the project. And that is quite unique to the Australian context as well. Um, quite different to ethnographies from the US and the UK, um, for example, that detail more what we would call race matching and where people try to match the profile of the parents to the donor. But in the people I interviewed, there was a big subset actually that um, chose egg or sperm donors of a different racial background to them or their partner. So are conceiving a particular kind of multiracial family. And while some of those stories were um, really beautiful and had sort of, yeah, lovely reckonings with um, difference in them, a lot of them also had concerning threads to them in that uh, colorblindness, as I alluded to earlier, and love were kind of positioned as the central ways to deal with um, a child with a completely different racial identity to the parents. And this included um, white couples who conceived children of colour um, through donors and or surrogates of colour, often overseas. So that was the start of my conversation with uh, Dr Jayakini um, for Women on the Line. The full episode is available at 3cr.org.au slash women on the line or wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you download the community radio app, uh, you can access all of 3CR's amazing shows um, from there as well. We will be right back with our next segment right after this. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. We are now going to revisit a conversation that Ivka had with Jill Gallagher, a proud Gunditjmara woman from Western Victoria and CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, uh, also known as VATCHO. Jill was on Tuesday breakfast two weeks ago to talk about VATCHO's 2024-2025 budget submission to the Victorian government, which focuses on removing systematic barriers for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. The Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or VACO, has launched its 2024-2025 budget submission to the Victorian Government, which focuses on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. The CEO of VACO, Jill Gallagher, joins us to discuss what this budget is requesting. Jill is a proud Gujamara woman from Western Victoria and is an accomplished and experienced strategic leader championing the needs of the First Nations community. Jill has spent more than 20 years advancing Aboriginal health and wellbeing through her work with VACO and has over 30 years of experience in leadership roles. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Jill. Uh, thank you for having me. So the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or for the rest of the interview, I will be calling it VACO, is yep. the peak representative for the health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here in Victoria. Can you tell the listeners why having community controlled health organisations is so important? Yeah, no, 
all good. Look, first I think I need to say uh, why it was important to have Aboriginal community, why we were established in the first place. Mm, please. Um, um, here in Victoria, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service is the first health service to be established um, um, from amazing Aboriginal leaders. And that was due to the need because our people weren't accessing mainstream services for, as we all know, for a whole range of reasons, such as fear, racism, um, not being treated appropriately, uh, and the list goes on. So that's the reason why our organisations were established. Um, now, why they should still be established and exist and grow is because... Uh, Aboriginal health in Aboriginal hands does amazing work um, because we know our communities mm. and we know what the solutions are. So that's 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 why um, um, we need the importance of our organisation. And there's many examples of what that looks like. Do you have a couple of examples that you could share with the listeners for us this morning? Yeah, well, there's one example is the um, uh, the program uh, around, you know, since colonisation, cultural inappropriate and unsafe health medical researches and uh, services that I mentioned earlier, mm. um, the Aboriginal, um, you know, d developing health programs and especially preventative programs, culture becomes a very important factor. Um, and it's really important to... There was one uh, program, and I'll point out one of our organisations, and it's up in Horsham, it's called Gulam Gulam. And what they did, they used culture to also overlay uh, the work that they were trying to do, uh, and that is they used the making of a possum skin cloak uh, workshop to bring a lot of young people in and connect with elders. Mm. Um, and whilst they're making that possum skin cloak, they're also yarning about um, health programs and prevention and what you know. What's and uh, just an amazing program. Another one is the Beautiful Shore Project. Uh, and the Beautiful Shore Project was developed by community for community. Uh, and we knew that our mob weren't accessing mainstream screening services for cancer because, you know, our mob, as, as the listeners would know, our mob uh, aren't any more prone to get cancer uh, than non-Aboriginal people. But what's happening in our communities is that we're not being screened earlier enough uh, or at all so when we do get cancer, it's at the very advanced stages, but non-Aboriginal people are living longer with cancer. So the Beautiful Shore Project was developed by many Aboriginal communities in Victoria to help women uh, to access screening at a very, you know, very early stages. Um, and the shore pro is like... So each community designed this shore and they had their own cultural branding and their stories on it. And um, um, and so when women go to be breast screened, 
um, they could actually use the shawl. And it's the concept that you've been wrapped in culture. Mm. Uh, and plus, your titties aren't flopping out <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> that that's incredible Jill and I think you said a phrase earlier by community for community and I think uh, everything that you're calling for in the budget that is really at the forefront and in a system that is you know built by people not for certain communities and it is a really hard thing to access I think those two examples are incredible um, in this budget, it calls for the statewide rollout of the Culture and Kinship Program. Yep. And I had a look through the evaluation report of this program and it states that even in the short term, change is achievable when programs and services that support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are genuinely First Nations led. I'd love you to tell the listeners uh, like a summary of this program and what results you saw from it. Yeah, so basically this is what I touched on very early on. Mm. Um, and one of the programs, I'll point out, Gulam Gulam up in Horsham, where they brought young people in a workshop. And I'll sometimes, you know, in, in modern um, Aboriginal cultures, a lot, um, especially in Victoria, uh, to stay connected to culture, because colonisation, it was so brutal here and it was so devastating and so quick... It destroyed a lot of our own Aboriginal ways of knowing, being and doing. So a lot of our young people, especially the ones who've been disconnected from their community and their families, um, being connected to culture is a protective factor. That's what a lot of people don't understand. I remember a very amazing elder. Her name is Arnie Melva Johnson. She said to me, oh, I think it must be now 25 years ago, she said to me, Jill, if we do not grow our burais strong in culture, then they're going to struggle to deal with what life throws at them in a modern Australia. So culture is a protective factor, and that's what this culture and kinship is trying to achieve. And the Gulen Gulen example is a lot of those young people that attended that workshop have never been exposed to that. So it was just amazing to see the smiles. Um, and for those people, I mean, you can read that report. It's an amazing report. So we're saying we need to roll this out. Mm. Um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's any Aboriginal person out there that would disagree with me as in culture is a protective factor, being strong in your culture and your beliefs and um, connected to your mob and, yeah. Mm. And that, that report, the Culture and Kinship Report, is a really amazing read and we will link to it in the show notes for our podcast later. Amazing. Um, Jill, Aboriginal communities in Victoria, as you know, have attempted to change the way health research is conducted to make it ethical and respect Aboriginal cultures and needs, which is something it has not done in the past. Yeah. In 2018, the Victorian government took the necessary step of committing to the development of a research accord and provided initial funding for VACO to lead. And this was undertaken under your leadership. And in this new budget submission, 2024 to 2025, there is additional funding requested to implement Maranaru Maraguri, the Victorian Aboriginal Health, Medical and Wellbeing Research Accord. Can you uh, explain a bit about the process of developing the accord 
and what its implementation would look like? Yeah. Um, yes, so the research accord is we all know that since 250 years, uh, Aboriginal people have been under the microscope. Um, you know, I mean, in the very early days of colonisation, there was some atrocious um, incidents of scientists, you know, breaking into morgues and ra uh, grave robbing just to get Aboriginal skeletons, and, and the list goes on. So research in our community is for a long time has been uh, really a dirty word. Mm. Um, but we know the importance of research, but the importance of good research and how do we apply uh, what we've learnt out of that research into program delivery. Um, so Vacho for many years has been trying to what's the word, um, infiltrate the academia world. Even You know, Vacho, we're a peak body for Aboriginal health and wellbeing. We are not a research institute, so our influence in that space has been pretty poor. Mm. Um, but with the research accords, that will help not only Vacho, but local Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and communities to be able to influence that research agenda and make sure the research is good research, it's done ethically, uh, and who owns the data mm. it has to be us as Aboriginal people. Yeah, for sure. It's going back to what uh, we've touched on many times through this conversation of even something like data in the right hands is culturally safe and can be, you know, beneficial moving forward. Um, otherwise, it can be taken advantage of. Yes. And not only that, I mean, uh, it's really hard. I remember a long time ago, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, they set up a re um, an ethics, an Aboriginal-specific ethics committee. And that was to try and help and, and, and add some Aboriginal expertise um, into the academia world of research and ethics. But it was it was too hard. I mean, it's a humongous, big um, community in its own right, research and academia. Mm. Um, but the research accord has also looked at how can we do that? How can we influence all the ethics committees? Um, and, and also the other... I think the other aspect is... Um, there's, for many years, there's been a lot of, um, what do you call it, medical trials that, mm. that researchers, um, you know, new medicines, whether it's fighting cancer or, or, or a whole range of illnesses, our people don't access those trials. And some of them are life-changing. So we'd like to open up that door to give our people the option to decide whether they want to. Mm, totally. Totally. Uh, yeah. Um, and lastly, this morning, uh, in the budget, it calls for support for the Dandenong and District Aborigines Cooperative to acquire land and fully develop plans for facilities that deliver holistic models of care and that replace rundown facilities. And so, according to census data, the Dandenong 
and district Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population in 2021 was 13,000 roughly and the census projections are stating that the population will grow to around 23,000 in 2036. So with this growth and current facilities restricting crucial services, what would funding uh, in this region uh, do to improve facilities? Wow. Look, Daniel, we've done a whole, that show with our members, we have 33 Aboriginal community-controlled organisations around the state of Victoria. Dandenong is one of them. Dandenong, um, and we've done a lot of work in trying to assess our infrastructure needs for our, organi- our members, um, and Dandenong's come on top as a priority. And most of our members supported that because their infrastructure where they deliver services their offices, their doctors' clinics, they're, you know, prehistoric, basically. And some doc- some GPs have said, look, we shouldn't even be working in here. Wow. So, yeah, I know, it's, it's that bad. So we've called on the, we've called on the government, we put up a whole proposal to, or, to address all our organisations' infrastructure needs. No one funds Aboriginal organisations in Victoria for infrastructure. Mainstream community health, and hospitals get a lot of state government funding for that. Um, but we don't. And we rely on Commonwealth funding, but they see Victoria as, as not a priority, um, Commonwealth. So, um, and then it's competitive. So if, you got, uh, if you're a big organ- Aboriginal organisation, you've got, um, what do you call them, submission riders and that, um, and in that competitive market, they will get it. But the littler ones that don't have those resources, they struggle to compete. So we've called on the Victoria... And we've shown them the way. We actually put up a whole program where it would cost the government very little. But anyways, but in the interim, we've put up a budget bid for Dandenong infrastructure. And um, um, so we're hoping, out of all the budget bids, uh, that's going to be a priority for government. We've been listening to a conversation between IFCA and Jill Gallagher from Vacho about their 2024-2025 budget submission to the Victorian government. Um, we're going to jump into our next segment straight away. So uh, on Invasion Day this year, as we marched from Parliament House to Flinders Street, Marisol from Mujeres Latinoamericanas and I spoke to Indigenous and non-Indigenous people at the rally to ask why it was important for people to show up for Invasion Day and to stand in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities here in so-called Australia, as well as with Indigenous peoples all over the world. One of the people you hear from in this excerpt is Yaren Cousins Bundle, a proud Gunditjmara, Yuan and Jara woman uh, who works to protect sacred sea country as part of SOPEC, Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective. Yes, uh, we are here at the Parliament steps. Um, this is the invasion day, so but we have Dana from Palestina who is going to talk to us about why you are here. Um, as a Palestinian living under the only withstanding settler colonial apartheid regime in the world, the Zionist regime, I can relate directly to what my Aboriginal sisters and brothers in the so-called Australia feel. I can see their struggle, 
I connect with them, I connect with the oppression that they have been facing for the past 237 years, 36 years. Um, colonial oppression is not just when the settler colony calls itself a settler colony. Colonial oppression lasts in policies for decades and decades and decades. And all oppressed people need to come together to abolish the settler colony wherever it is all over the world, in the so-called Australia or the settler colonial system, the Zion system in Palestine. And we are here with Huda, who is going to give us some word about why it's so important to be here today supporting our brothers and sisters from here, from Nam. I think it's very important. Well, first of all, I'm a settler and I have to acknowledge that this land that I'm on is not mine and it's unceded land. Um, the other thing is, as a settler, I have to do my part. Like, I have to take action. I have to, I have to do whatever I can for my Indigenous brothers and sisters. And Invasion Day is just one of those things. It's one of those really small things we can do, just show up for like one day amongst many other things. Um, also, also, I think it's horrifying when you look at like all the stats, when you look at everything that's happened to Indigenous people, like all the history, the fact that there's so many black deaths in custody, the fact that they're still fighting all these mining companies, everything they're doing, it's like it's a struggle and we understand that struggle. And as someone from Africa, like I, I understand colonization, I, um, and I, like I get that. It fractures families, it causes death, destruction. Um, and yeah, I think it's very, very important to show up for our First Nation brothers and sisters in every way we can. My name is Yaren Cousins Bundle. I'm a Gunditjmara, Yuan, Japurang, Papidra woman. And um, I'm here today to stand up for healing country and, um, you know, protecting country. Um, all the, the industries and the government has ever done is take away from us. Um, so we're going to be coming here. Southern Brothers, they um, actually, when when we have sorry business in community, they're actually the, um, the guides that guide the hearse and all the families, so it's a really special thing, yeah. Um, but yeah, my yarn um, today was a little bit about yeah, protecting country, um, the risks that um, are happening now to our sea country and um, our ocean kin, um, the southern right whales and all of the southern ocean um, marine life that are at risk from the world's largest seismic blasting project ever in history. So they want to um, set off the sound of, um, you know, louder than, than a jumbo jet. They want to set that off every 10 seconds, non-stop, 24 hours a day for months on end. Um, and it kills, directly kills all the um, planktonic species in the ocean. So all the planktons, which are, you know, the zooplanktons and the krills, they're the actual foundations of the ocean. And right up until the largest um, and oldest storyteller in the world, um, Woolock, the blue whale. So everything else in between, you know, the microscopic right up to the largest and they're all at risk, but especially this um, food source, um, you know, and people, countries all around the world have been, um, you know, like Japan, killing whales and sea life in the Southern Ocean for a long time. 
and um, you know, if I had a big ocean-going vessel, um, you know, we would be the Black Sea Shepherd. We would go and defend that sacred life, um, those oceanic languages that, um, you know, their sound and vibration and energy um, and their place of belonging in the world is of, of vital importance to, you know, us Gunditjmara as coastal people on the southern coast of Australia, but um, should be, you know, everyone should be worried about this fight because if the oceans die, our whole planet dies. And in a time of mass extinction, um, us humans are going to become a co-extinction story, you know. Um, if they go, we go. And so it's really vital to, you know, be able to protect all of those, um, you know, living beings and elemental living entities like the salt water itself, be the voice of protection and strength for them. And, you know, really hope that people come um, on this journey with us. And, you know, because the state and federal governments don't care. Um, as I said in my yarn before that, Australia is earmarked to power the world. Um, they don't want to stop. They're, they hold on to this um, greed, which is actually a sickness in my culture. And we need to um, activate the power of the people to stand together because we are stronger. And, you know, the youth of this world need to have proper role models to look up to and to follow in our footsteps of what a sustainable future really looks like. And my old people have been um, caring for country for thousands of years, so we ask everyone to take their place of belonging and care for sacred country as well. Um, you know, honour to the oldest continuum in the world. Thank you. There is any web page or anything where people can get more information? Uh, yes, we're in the process of doing up a web page um, and getting our cultural supports and permissions. Um, but um, on socials, so SOPEC and uh, Facebook and Instagram, you can find SOPEC, the Southern Ocean Protection Embassy Collective, and we're fighting for sea country. Excellent. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The people united will never be defeated. People united will never be defeated. Will never be defeated. All right, so we're here with Jolene at the rally. Um, Jolina, why you are here? Why do you think it's important to be here today? Well, I'm a Torres Strait Islander, so for me, this is a day of mourning. My um, Abra, my grandmother, was uh, displaced and taken away from her family when she was younger. Um, so she was taken away from her mother and all her siblings forcibly by the state. So this is a really um, important day for me and my family. Um, what do you think? How many people came today? Do you think you, this? sentiment is growing about the injustice and genocide absolutely. that happened here. Absolutely, and there's so many indigenous cultures and communities here today. There, I can see a um, Tinorangatira flag for the Māori people in Aotearoa. I can see the um, uh, the morning staff for the people in West Papua. This is just a beautiful moment to see all these indigenous peoples together. Thank you so much. Do you want to leave a message for anyone who will be listening to the station? Absolutely, I'll say that we're still here and we're still thriving and we're full of love for the land, the people, the sky and the waters.
Thank you so much. All right, so we are here at the rally. We are marching, Funga myself, and we can see signs, you know, no pride in genocide, no peace on a stolen land. We see support us. You know, this is the dead in custody. As you know, families, for those one who die in custody, they need our support. We have so many people here today that is incredible, impressive. I've been in so many rallies, but there is so many people today that is so good. We are hoping that this will continue growing every year. All right, so we are with Carolina here at the rally today. Carolina, you have a sign yes. from Abyala to Nam to Gaza Solidarity. Could you please let us know why you are here today? Of course, yes, we're coming from the Abyala, the uh, indigenous land known as Latin America. Uh, we're here in support of all First Nations people. We're here in support of all Palestinian people and with the purpose of um, taking part in the decolonization of this land, taking part in the um, work that needs to be done to abolish the colony, abolish the occupation and land back and bring the land back to the people who have traditionally owned it and are still the owners of this land here in, in um, so-called Australia back in Palestine and back in the Abyayala where we're still 500 years later colonized and occupied. Thank you. So where are you from? I'm from uh, the land of the uh, indigenous people of the Quito Cara, known as Ecuador, Quito, Ecuador. Wow. I'm from, from Mapuche, Mapuche. From Chile. Oh, yeah. solidarity, sister. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. <laughs> Perfect. All right, we have with us Lorena Walker. We are still here in the rally because of the genocide committed here in Australian, uh, well, no Australian land, indigenous land. So please let us know why it's so important for the people to come here today or to take today as an important day to support indigenous people. Yeah, it's always an, a, an important day for First Nations people of Australia. Um, yeah, we don't celebrate Australia Day. We, we, we do Survival Day because we know that our ancestors before us uh, fought hard to, to where we are today. But also, we have to reflect on, um, you know, the, the genocide that happened before our time. And it's a time for us to come together and, and like many of the speakers today, um, speak on how important it is as a nation to um, recognize that the first peoples of this country are still every day being treated less than human. We, we do need our human rights and I think it's, yeah, it's very important that we, we come together and to be here today I just, I feel very, um, yeah, just emotional because we are standing alongside the people of Palestine as well whose lands are being taken over. So, yeah, it's, it's, for, for all Australians, it's, it's a must to understand that there's First Nations people all over the country who are still fighting for our rights every day. And uh, there's so many things that um, you can do to support us. Uh, but the most important are days like this where we come together, stand together and walk together. 
So do you want to say a message, you know, for the people who are going to listen? Um, yeah, just, I, I just really just want to say, um, yeah, just always remember that you are standing and living, working on the land of Aboriginal people and just to pay respect and to acknowledge that we're still here, we're still fighting. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been listening to Marisol and Fung, who spoke to various people in the community at the Invasion Day rally on 26 January. You can revisit 3CR's Invasion Day special broadcast by going to www.3cr.org.au forward slash Invasion Day 2024. In the next segment, uh, we have Mackenzie Wakefield, who is an employment and industrial law solicitor at Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Uh, Mackenzie assists employees and unions with a range of legal disputes that can arise at work. I spoke with Mackenzie yesterday about the work she's doing acting for the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, in a federal court application against the Queensland University of Technology over the university's use of dodgy fixed-term contracts. Right, so very excited to have uh, Mackenzie Wakefield with us uh, today. Mackenzie, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about your work with the NTU, the National Tertiary Education Union, um, and what your role has been in working on cases with them? Sure. So I'm a lawyer at Morris Blackburn Lawyers and we work closely with the NTEU um, in relation to the complex litigation and, and claims that they bring um, regularly in the higher education sector. So they've been involved in some really important work um, with underpayments and wage theft in the higher education sector. So we assist where we can with complex litigation and um, we are specifically assisting the NTEU with this claim in the Federal Court of Australia against QUT in relation to uh, these dodgy fixed-term contracts that they've been employing uh, their academics on. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into a little bit more about that um, case. Just a little bit of background first. So uh, last year on uh, December 6, there were changes to the Fair Work Act, which came into effect. Um, and I believe that included limiting the use of fixed-term contracts for what was actually ongoing work. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about those changes and what significance they might have for people in precarious roles? Yeah, so um, the Secured Jobs Better Pay amendments came into effect last year. And in relation to fixed-term employment specifically, the amendments prohibited employers uh, continuously employing people on fixed-term contracts for more than two years where they're doing essentially the same work. The issue um, for the higher education sector, unfortunately, is that it doesn't apply to positions that are funded in whole or in part by government grants, um, which, of course, many research grants are um, allocated for up to five years. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty to be resolved in relation to how those amendments 
um, affect the higher education sector specifically. Um, but as a whole, they're really positive changes. We know that insecure employment has really significant impacts on not only our economy, but on a more granular level, the mental health of particular workers who are doing the same work day in, day out, um, but don't know, you know when their employment is going to end, if they're going to have a job next year. So overall, the changes have been um, positive, but there's still quite a bit to be resolved in terms of how it's going to deal with the higher education sector. Yeah, and what it seems like we're seeing um, in higher ed and, and in other sectors as well is this sort of um, tiered system where you've got some people on um, secure work and then you've got often um, younger people, casuals, um, who are, I guess, um, yeah, experiencing really poor conditions. Do you notice um, anything in your work in terms of the makeup of those or the demographics of those in insecure work? Yeah, we know it's it really covers a lot of people. And when we talk about the higher education sector in particular, um, it doesn't uh, necessarily discriminate on, you know, age or, or particular roles. Um, the NTU estimates that less than one in three employees in the university sector is secured in, on a secure basis. So it's absolutely rife throughout the university sector that people are increasingly employed as casuals or on these dodgy fixed term contracts, um, which has really, really significant impacts on not only their life and, and how they, uh, you know, go about their careers and their day-to-day -day work, but also on the economy and also on, you know, education um, and the way that that's delivered in Australia as well. Mm, exactly. It's going to mean um, difficult or um, worse outcomes often for students and for the whole learning environment. As you said, we're seeing um, these problems in terms of precarity becoming the norm, um, things around wage theft and um, a lot of sort of scandals in the media and maybe more mainstream attention on these issues. And we're also seeing um, some wins with um, NTU action and court cases. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the um, case that your firm's been involved in um, against the Queensland University of Technology and these dodgy fixed-term contracts? Yeah, absolutely. So we are representing the NTU on behalf of three of their members. So um, three academics who have been employed with QUT for years and years in the same role, so as STEM educators. So they were involved in providing ongoing academic support to students. Um, and when I say they've been employed for years, um, Dr. Burfin had been there almost five years, Dr. Devine had been there almost 10 years, so really significant 10 years at the university. Um, the practice which is at issue in the proceedings is that where most workers who are employed for such extended periods of time are generally employed on an ongoing basis as permanent employees, um, the claimants in our claim were engaged uh, on consecutive numerous fixed term contracts. So despite their roles and their work being ongoing for years and years and needed and required by the university, their employment was insecure. And sometimes they would only get their next contract, you know, just weeks or days before their current contract ended. Um, so that obviously has really significant impacts on their day-to-day -day life. Um, but it also means that when their roles were made redundant and we know that universities restructure 
pretty regularly. Um, when there was a restructure that meant that these roles were no longer required, they weren't eligible for redundancy entitlements, um, which would usually follow a worker's role being made redundant. And these are really significant entitlements. Um, for each of the claimants, it's worth between you know, $65,000 and $100,000 each. So really significant redundancy entitlements that they weren't eligible for simply because the you know, QUT had been engaging them on fixed-term contracts. So not only is that uh, unfair, we also say it's unlawful. Um, the claimants' employment were governed by enterprise agreements. Um, and in those agreements, QUT had committed to offering ongoing employment as the default, right, wherever possible to specifically avoid job insecurity and job losses. Um, those agreements do allow for fixed-term contracts, but only in very certain circumstances. So, for example, where uh, an academic is engaged uh, to perform a specific task, which has a known start date and a known end date, um, or where the funding is external. So, the university has no control over um, how long the, the work or the role is going to be funded for. So, those are very limited circumstances. Uh, and the enterprise agreements say that QUT will not use fixed-term uh, appointments to fill ongoing positions or for ongoing work other than in those circumstances. But um, as our claim argues, QUT has routinely used those fixed term appointments outside of those particular circumstances, um, which is inappropriate, uh, it's unlawful, and it's really materially hurt these claimants. Mm, yeah, 100%. And it sounds as though this is just sort of the top of the iceberg in terms of the people around Australia who are going to be in these sorts of uh, situations. So um, have you had any outcomes um, yet in terms of this case? No, so we're still in the fairly early stages of the proceedings, um, but we're hopeful that uh, as the proceedings progress, um, we'll make some real progress that will um, lead to hopefully this practice being stopped in its tracks and universities realising that they can't continue to employ people insecurely uh, to do work that's ongoing and required by the universities. And just thinking about how, yeah, how these sort of individual cases do make bigger change, how does that generally happen in terms of do universities see the response to this and then um, think about their own uh, employment contracts? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's ideal is that they, uh, you know, use these cases to really take a closer look at their practices and the way that they are um, complying or not complying with their lawful obligations. Um, we're obviously seeking significant um, compensation for the claimants, um, which is just the entitlements we say that they would have been entitled to at law anyway. Um, but also these claims do give rise to really important conversations about what our higher education industry is or sector is looking like and the practices of universities generally. And that public pressure is, is really important to have those sorts of conversations. Um, and it also speaks to broader, you know, social issues. The first is your freedom of speech and, and of academic debate. Universities are places where we expect to have, and many people would say we benefit from having robust debates about new ideas and policies and change, um, sometimes ideas that university higher-ups don't particularly agree with. Um, and if you're on a contract that ends in a couple of months and there's no guarantee that you're going to be extended, um, you're going to be much less likely to rock the boat by engaging in those sorts of 
conversations. So there are real material impacts of this sort of insecure employment on academics and on the education, higher education sector generally. And so we're hopeful that bringing claims like these really gets those conversations started and forces these universities to take a proper look at how they're treating their workers. Mm. Yeah, and what you've said seems so important in terms of, yeah, workers who are in this really vulnerable and dependent position um, and we want critical thinking and change in universities. So, yeah, it it seems like such um, an important case. Um, And so I guess then in terms of next steps, um, we're seeing a lot of different cases around um, wage theft and how that connects as well with strike action because the NTU can, you know, refer to those wins and create... um, a sort of a bigger movement um, amongst workers as well as the public conversation. Um, is your firm working on any other um, cases um, around the higher education sector and these contracts? This case is really our focus at the moment, but the NTU is constantly doing so much work in this space. I know that secure employment is one of their um, main issues that they're working to fight against. Um, at the moment, the you know the higher education sector, as we've seen in recent years, is increasingly sort of repositioning itself from um, you know organisations whose purpose it is to educate to really profit making machines. So the NTU is doing really really important work to um, change that and to make sure that universities' focus is really um, delivering excellent education and research and treating their workers properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so great. Um, so in terms of listeners who might want to find out more or even um, find support if they're in a difficult position themselves, do you have any recommendations? Um, yeah, for them? absolutely. So if you're um, in the higher education sector, um, have a chat to your union. They have an absolute wealth of knowledge uh, in this area, they've seen all the sorts of different contracts that can be offered. Um, so have a chat with them at first instance, get in touch with your union delegate. Um, or if you're still not sure, of course, you can get in touch with a lawyer as well. There have been a lot of changes in this industry um, and then a lot of dodgy practices by universities as well to keep keep up. So it's a complicated area if you're not sure, um, but you've just got a whiff of something being not quite right or it doesn't feel fair, absolutely get in touch with your union or have a chat to your lawyer because um, odds are uh, it probably isn't right and it probably isn't lawful. Thanks so much. Uh, That's all we have time for today, Uh, Mackenzie. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we go? No, thank you so much for having me on. I I hope that's been helpful. And look, um, we're really excited to see where this case goes and and looking forward to really holding QUT to account. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. That was uh, a conversation I had yesterday with Mackenzie Wakefield uh, from Morris Blackburn Lawyers on the NTU's case against the Queensland University of Technology and the larger problem of job insecurity in Australia's universities. We are now going to be speaking with Jamie, who is a queer officer of the University of Sydney SRC and member of the group Pride in Protest. They are joining us on the show today to tell us about Pride in Protest's anti-Zionist statement in response to an article asserting that Mardi Gras isn't safe for Jews and the problematic conflation of Judaism and Zionism. Welcome to 3CR, Jamie. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So for listeners who might not be aware, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what Pride and Protest does? Yeah, so Pride and Protest is an activist collective in so-called Sydney, uh, fighting for social justice within the community and beyond the community. So that includes, you know, organizing protests uh, and things like that. Amazing. And they've been doing a lot of really great work, um, you know, for the last couple of years. Uh, And recently, Pride and Protest just posted a statement to Instagram as a response to an article written in The Australian by a Zionist group. Can you tell us a little bit about that article and uh, Pride and Protest's response as well? Yeah, sure. So the background for that article is that after a successful campaign by us and actually the broader community, we managed to make Mardi Gras the biggest pride organization in the world that we know of to call for a ceasefire in Palestine. Uh, And in response to that, uh, the Zionist group uh, Dayanu, which uh, marches in Mardi Gras, um, put out a statement to the Australian uh, saying that this call for a ceasefire, call for an end to the occupation, uh, and, you know, call for an end to these human rights violations in Gaza Uh, is anti-Semitic and makes Mardi Gras unsafe for Jews. So, yeah, like, that's not exactly how any of of this works. Um, As as Brighton protests said in their response, could you walk us through the response and why do you think it was important to respond in the way that you did? Yeah, so uh, our statement was about the conflation of Zionism and Judaism. Uh, What we emphasise really is that Zionism is a very distinct right-wing extremist political ideology that doesn't actually have, uh, uh, you know, is not the same as Judaism as a religion or a people. Um, you know, Zionism is the ideology that is pushing the bloodshed we're seeing right now in Gaza, uh, and it's ultimately a form of white supremacy. And we don't think that white supremacy should be welcome in any, uh, you know, progressive or, or queer space. Um, Yeah, I think that uh, especially the point about being in a queer space is really important given, you know, all the pinkwashing that's been happening as well lately, as well as Israel's pinkwashing that they've used to justify the genocide in Palestine in the past. Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing right now is queer people's identities and and narratives uh, being used essentially as a shield to justify ongoing human rights violations. We're seeing you know, uh, uh, IDF soldiers uh, holding up pride flags uh, to a backdrop of bombed civilian infrastructure with the slogan, in the name of love. Um, And quite frankly, that's both an insult to uh, us as queer people and really anyone with a shred of humanity, I would argue. And so uh, ultimately the people, you know, we argue pushing this uh, in, you know, whether it be in Mardi Gras or without don't actually represent the broader Jewish community. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that, you know, despite all the narrative around it, I feel a lot of people are still uh, conflating the two things, being Jewish and being a Zionist, you know, and often I think uh, it's a deliberate conflation by Zionists to to cause that confusion. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about how this is so harmful, particularly in LGBTQI spaces? Yeah, absolutely. So when, uh, you know, when we're seeing, uh, you know, people being 
subject to human rights violations, including queer Palestinians. Um, actually, the assertion by these Zionist groups that to be Jewish is to support this bloodshed is actually deeply anti-Semitic and dangerous to queer Jews, uh, you know, as much as it is to the rest of the community. Um, and when we have, you know, these uh, groups trying to march in what in Mardi Gras, which we see as a protest, uh, but not willing to support the Jewish community or the queer community, then that's really not on. Because actually these uh, uh, these groups, these Zionist lobby groups, don't actually care much for the queer community itself. We've seen statements from the AJA uh, and other groups, which are one minute, uh, uh, you know, in shock and horror that, uh, that we would call for a ceasefire, but in the next moment will... Uh, have meetings with notorious, uh, infamous transphobes like Catherine Deves. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't quite add up, does it? No, not really. Um, I love that in your statement, part of this statement is encouraging anyone of Jewish faith uh, that does want to march to come and march with Pride and Protest uh, at Mardi Gras, um, which clearly, you know, makes it clear where where Pride and Protest stands, despite what uh, is being said by these Zionist groups. Absolutely, yeah. So we're actually so we're going to be marching in the Mardi Gras parade, uh, and the slogan for our float is "Trans Pride, Not Genocide." Uh, and, you know, if these groups say they feel displaced from Mardi Gras because, you know, they, uh, they feel like they can't um, exist in a space that is uh, anti-war um, and anti-genocide, then actually they're the ones that are displacing Jewish people from Mardi Gras, not uh, the people calling for peace. Uh, and so we'd encourage, you know, whether you're Jewish or whether, you, uh, whether you're not Jewish, uh, if you, you know, support queer people and don't support uh, what you're seeing right now with, you know, hospitals being bombed in, in Gaza and everything like that, to absolutely march with us uh, in that parade. And in addition to that, march with us in our Mardi Gras street rally, which will be coming up in February. Yeah, that's great. Can you tell listeners a bit more about the street rally as well? Yeah, so the Mardi Gras street rally, uh, we hold it every year and the essentially um, point of this rally is to say that actually Pride is a protest. Uh, Mardi Gras, of course, started as a uh, protest which had a brutal police crackdown. Uh, and so uh, we're not going to sit by and, you know, let this turn from a protest for our rights into a, um, you know, a corporate show-off for, uh, you know, American Express Yourself or, um, you know, Zionist groups that are advocating genocide, uh, in fact, we'd, you know, much rather uh, see it as a place where we can uh, stand up for ourselves, thrive as a community, and, uh, you know, uh, represent ourselves as queer people. Absolutely. I love that so much. Um, so that street rally is coming up on the 18th of February, is that right? Yep, and that'll be at 2 p.m. on the 18th of February in Pride Square, which is in Newtown in so-called Sydney. Amazing. And so, so if any listeners are interested and will be in Sydney at the time, uh, definitely we encourage everyone to to go down and support um, the street rally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jamie, so, yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, uh, I was going to say, yeah, it's really important to, you know, get out to these mobilizations because, you know, Mardi Gras is, of course, fun, but 
uh, it is a political event, whether you know whether we acknowledge it or not. I think that's a really, really important uh, uh, note to end on. I think you know we are in a really corporatized environment at the moment, where people do forget that Mardi Gras started in protest and is rooted in protest and you know nobody's free until anybody's free so um really appreciate you reminding listeners of that and encouraging everyone to come along absolutely uh jamie that's all we have time for this morning but thank you so much for joining us on 3cr breakfast great thank you so that was Jamie from Pride and Protest talking to us about their recent response to an article asserting Mardi Gras wasn't safe for Jewish people because the group called for a ceasefire in Palestine. You can follow Pride and Protest on Instagram at pride.in.protest. So that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, we had a big show this morning. Uh, we started off at 7.15 listening to... Uh, a little bit of a conversation I had with Dr. Jayakini on Women on the Line yesterday about creating queer families and the intersections of race and queerness, um, as well as the lack of choice for queer people. At 7.30, we listened to a conversation that Ivka had with Jill Gallagher, a proud Gunditch Mara woman from Western Victoria and CEO of Bacho. Um, Jill was on Tuesday Breakfast two weeks ago to talk about uh, con- uh, Vacho's 2024-25 budget submission to the Victorian government, which focuses on removing systemic barriers for Aboriginal health and well-being. At 7.45, we listened to some incredible vox pops from this year's Invasion Day rally that were recorded by Marisol and Fung. They spoke to various people in the community at the rally on the 26th of January. You can revisit the entire Invasion Day special broadcast by going to 3cr.org.au slash Invasion Day 2024. At 8 o'clock, uh, we heard from Mackenzie Wakefield from Morris Blackburn Lawyers on the her action with the National Tertiary Education Union against the Queensland University of Technology on the university's use of dodgy fixed-term contracts. And just then we ended our show by speaking with Jamie from Pride in Protest about the importance of remembering Mardi Gras is uh, rooted in protest and about their anti-Zionist statement in response to an article asserting that Mardi Gras wasn't going to be safe for the Jewish community because they called for a ceasefire. That's all we have time for today on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Stay tuned for the rest of the week um, to all the other breakfast shows and tune in next Tuesday to Tuesday Breakfast at 7am. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.